Welcome back to the Service Design Podcast. My name is Lauren Somers. And I'm Jeroen de Peit. And today we are honored to welcome a very special guest in our studio. She's a service design leader turned filmmaker with an amazing track record of impactful projects. When I was still in high school in 2009, she co-founded the award-winning service design studio Snook and led the company for over uh, 12 years. Uh, and currently she's running uh, the School of Good Services as a director. And yeah, it's clear she likes to found things because she is also behind the initiatives of my Polis, Cycle Hack, Dearest Scotland, Aloha Pride, The Matter, and Mental Health Design Pattern Library. All initiatives that um, do good things from challenging the relation between state and citizen, for example, to also providing uh, platforms for young people to learn new skills. Um, and apparently, besides her fantastic career as a designer, she also spins some some elusive tunes under the mysterious but disclosing name DJ Drummond Bass. Welcome to have you in our studio, Sarah Drummond. Thanks for having me. I always feel awkward after that, but that's great. <laughs> and I'm guilty of spinning very good tunes. <laughs> Perfect. Nice to set the scene this way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's so nice to have you here physically in our studio in uh, in Ghent. Um, is this the first time you, you are in Ghent? Or? Yeah, first time. I mean, I've been to Brussels uh, a couple of times for work, but this is, it's like a much smaller, maybe you might not appreciate this, but like a much more relaxed Brussels or Amsterdam. Yeah. <laughs> it's very, very nice. Yeah, of course. Uh, and yeah, how are you doing? I'm very well. Yeah, I'm really, really well. I had lovely coffees this morning, went for a little walk around the area. So yeah, I'm feeling very relaxed, actually, which is not usual for me. <laughs> Sounds like a perfect start of the day, actually. We... um. Yeah, we're welcoming you here in our studio in Ghent, because tonight you are giving a talk at one of our events, uh, Arena, an event Night Moves organizes. And um, the theme of our event is uh, Designing for Trust. So for listeners who can't attend tonight or yeah, or haven't even heard about it, um, could you perhaps explain a little bit what your talk will be about later tonight? Yeah, definitely. So I'm talking about uh, trust. Um, and my, my talk tonight is actually a play on words. Uh, it's called Trust Falls, Catching Users When They Fall. So Trust Falls is this idea that you ask someone to fall back into your arms and you have to have trust that that person will catch you. Um, and the reason I'm sort of calling it that because I often think about trust as uh, predictability and expecting something is going to happen. Um, so I'm talking about that, but more specifically around how we actually look after users or customers in the services that we offer to them and how we keep them safe because users, you know, they want to have that predictability that they'll be looked after by you if they're investing, you know, their effort, their belief system or their money into you. So I'm talking quite a bit actually about safety by design, how platforms can kind of increase their trust and safety initiatives um, and really in the face of online harms increasing the, that people are, are facing. So you've asked me to do a, a 20 minute talk, which I'm, I did say to the organizers, it's immensely hard to talk about this topic course, in such yeah. a short uh, period. But yeah, we're going to try and explore trust and, and safety. Quite a few topics actually that we'll be covering tonight. In 20 minutes, we have a bit more time today. Yeah. So maybe we can uh, <laughs> dive into one of these topics a bit more. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> I think we have uh, a lot of topics and questions uh, aligned, but I was also wondering, uh, designing for trust is such a, I think, relevant topic right now, especially in, in the world with everything that's going on, but also um, it's getting more and more of an issue sometimes as well um, to as for designers to, um, to really establish trust, but also for organizations to be trustworthy. Uh, and, and for users to to um, to trust the services that they use. Um, but where does your passion, interest for this topic come from? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I mean, designers, right? I think uh, designers are interested in everything. So that's my first answer. I just have a general interest in everything in the world and how it works. I think technology for me, I'm a bit of a technologist. Uh, I think it's really important as a designer to understand and, and look at emergent technology and what it's capable of potentially doing because our role as designers is to take that technology and apply it in the real world to meet needs of some kind or to create some kind of intervention so i'm super interested in technology as a, a kind of starting uh, point 
then I'm interested in the ethics around that technology because design isn't just about doing UX, you know, user interaction design. It's really actually about what you're actually putting out there in the world and the impact it's going to have. So I start kind of first with technology. I'm just enthused about, uh, but then I think growing up, uh, my brother had these books about like hideous crimes. Um, so I read a lot of uh, quite scary books about serial killers and people doing bad stuff. So I've had this kind of obsession with cr criminology, um, I, I guess disasterology as well, like things going wrong. I was a massive uh, uh, George Romero zombie film fan growing up. So I always was like, what happens if zombies invade the world? What will we do? How do we plan for it? So I, I guess like disaster and bad things happening is is kind of in my blood. <laughs> Not that I'm doing the bad things, by the way, <laughs> that I'm more interested. Um, and then I read this book uh, quite a few years ago that really solidified my interest and where I am now actually working on some of this stuff, uh, which is a book by Mark Goodman, and it was called Future Crimes Inside the Digital Underground and the Battle for Our Connected uh, World. I read it on a beach, which I wouldn't really recommend. It's not that relaxing. Um, and it sort of blew my mind about where we are on the cusp of humans doing bad things, but at scale and the impact that it could actually have, uh, you know, on, on full global systems like power stations, cutting out power for people through mm -hmm. cyber attacks and stuff like this. You know, as we start to take technology and put it in our body, mm -hmm. what does that mean if you can take control of someone's arms and, and their mind? So all of those things kind of coalesce, coalescing. Um, and I've been really lucky when I was at SNUK to work on a few projects that kind of cross over thematically into the space. Um, we did work uh, with Comic Relief on, it was called Tech Versus Abuse. And it was looking at um, perpetrators' use of technology uh, when they're kind of committing uh, domestic violence um, against people. So that was kind of hugely fascinating. I felt very passionate about helping them look at what we can do in that space. I've worked on verification systems for the government. So how you do digital identity to kind of reduce online scams. Um, and I worked with uh, Neighbourhood Watch, which is a kind of UK charity where community groups come together and form their own sort of little community group to try and combat crime in their area. And we, we did work with older people who had been victims of online fraud, which was, I mean, I just like feel like I cried the whole time doing, watching our team doing the research. So I just, blah, all of that together. Yeah. For me, it's just fascinating, really. So it kind of emerged from working with SNUK and uh, government public services, but then also noticing how actually private companies have huge impact on yeah, this online space, this not so safe space today, because mm. everything is connected as well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, uh, if you look at in the UK anyway, the you can see statistics come out every year. It's a, like a online internet report looks at people's internet usage and, and their feelings about the internet. And last year, I think that they said that the average user spends between, it's quite a wide stat, but it's up between six minimum and 22 hours a day mm -hmm. on the internet. So there's this kind of quite wide and a large amount of time on the internet. And that is interfacing with every type of service provider. You know, we live our life through services online now, whether you're watching television, whether you're you know, paying for something, whether you're interacting with the state to, to do something, to meet a law, we are living our lives. We're intimately connected with technology. Um, and I think if you're not interested in that, then how can you be designing any of these services for that? I think we really need to, 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 to be interested in that as designers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, of, of course. And um, I was just thinking um, uh, about something that happened recently, just as a small side note, that we actually live in Antwerp and the our, yeah, uh, city government was hacked around Christmas for, I think, uh, a month or two. Um, and there was um, really this, this difficulty. Everything was just blank. And um, uh, there was this difficulty of, of changing, for example, your driver's license even, or your identity card. It was this white, very impactful hack. Uh, I just uh, thought about it now, but it's, it's super relevant for, for the topic of today as well, I think. Yeah. Basically, every service, yeah. every public service was down. You couldn't even lend a book. Um, you couldn't go to the swimming pool. Or the, their payment system was even mm. connected, was also down. But most importantly, we're citizens um, and we don't even know what data they actually hacked mm -hmm. or still it's not disclosed. So we don't even know how much. Um, yeah. Yeah. The impact of the attack, they're very vague about it as well, because it's also a political uh, mm. um, uh, challenge, I think. But um, 
yeah, it's it's crazy that it happened. And I, just hearing you talk about it, I was I was also wondering because I think designing for trust has, has a lot of um, aspects and topics and maybe things that we have to watch out for. But um, can you maybe elaborate a little bit on what does it mean to design for trust or what does it mean to establish trust as a designer? What are some things that that could be um, of, of use there? Yeah, definitely. So, um, I mean, I also had this in, in where I live, like uh, it was one of the biggest local authority uh, cyber hacks that had ever been. And I think that reduced people's trust mm -hmm. in the council. We, we call it a council there. So, uh, I mean, trust is like, it's again, like doing this talk tonight in 20 minutes. It's such an ambiguous term. And so many scholars before me will have ideas about what trust actually means. Um, I really like uh, this little framework by um, Rachel Botsman. Uh, she has this little framework called uh, Trust Framework and she talks about reputation. So that's what people say. And there's a kind of element of trust around that. Um, then trust itself, your kind of beliefs or what people believe. And then trustworthiness, which is behavior and it kind of affects how users behave. And I, I kind of think about that quite a lot in tandem with this idea about trust as predictability. Uh, there was this um, quite a lot of studies done. This is a bit of a tangent, but come with me on a, on a story about spiders. Um, <laughs> there's been studies done about why people are scared of spiders. I'm I'm probably on the edge of being arachnophobic. Like I really hate them. I had an experience when I was younger. One popped up on my bed, and I just freaked out. And I've always wondered, like, what is it about spiders that makes me so scared? So I did a bit of digging and research, um, and it's the the unpredictable movement that actually scares people, that they they can't foresee what's going to happen. So I've always thought about when I was putting this talk together and, and, and being here today about this idea that as customers, as users, we like things to be predictable. We don't like when things are erratic or they change from what we expect to happen. So I kind of think about trust in sort of like five things. Um, one is that my investment that I give to you, and again, whether that is money, my time, my belief system, will give me the value or outcome that I expect. So it's predictable. I expect you to do something for me if I give you something. And the second kind of that works with that is that things will work in a way that I'm really familiar with as well. So really that's, if you take Lou Down's book, Good Services, and what we do at the School of Good Services, that is the thing that we train, like design good services so people are familiar and they understand how they're going to work and they'll get the thing that they um, expect. And then there's these kind of other three layers that I think are a little separate to that. So the third thing is really that the brand that I believe or what any, what I believe to be the brand and brand comes with ethos and values is that it will not stray from, from that thing that I believe it to do. So uh, take Twitter, for example, and the great, uh, we call it the great Twitter exodus when everyone left Twitter, when Elon Musk, not everyone, but a huge proportion of people left Twitter. Um, and went on to Mastodon or other social media accounts, they went because Elon Musk's quite out there <laughs> um, values quite and ethics. Unpredictable as quite well, unpredictable. Think, yeah. Well, this is really interesting, right? So um, uh, Bloomberg and a few other kind of like American newspapers, when they were reporting on Elon Musk taking over, they used the words erratic, unpredictable, unknowing, uh, you know, all these kinds of things coming right back to spiders. <laughs> no one could see what he was going to do. So when I, I think when we think about trust and predictability, again, it's about you not straying away from what you believe to be the ethos um, uh, of that. And then I think the final thing really with that is if you have a belief in, in their their brand, it then strays to your safety, right? So none of us want to come to any harm. So it is, I want to make sure that when I'm investing in something that I come to no harm. So I think that's the fourth thing is that investing in this process, this organization, it will ensure that I am safe and it will do no harm towards me. Um, and if I am harmed, the fifth thing is that they will take action. And so I know that's quite a sort of vast answer to what you're asking, but it's such a vast word. So for me, it's, you know, first two things, the service is designed well, it will do what I expect. You know, the spider will <laughs> move in the way I want it to. The third away thing from is, you. Yeah, yeah, away from me. I can control it. Hey, I've, I met a tarantula once and it was not a fun experience. So it moved very fast in an unpredictable way. Um, that the brand will not deviate from what I believe it to do. So again, it's a predictability. And then finally, that if I'm going to invest in this and take part in something, I will not be harmed and you will treat me um, well. And I think about those five things when I work with any company. Mm -hmm. 
What I find interesting about the framework is that we regularly as designers design for the, oh, this is the ideal journey. Oh, it would be so nice if it works this way and all of these needs are met and this is the perfect experience and we design for that. And we also design to solve some problems, some pitfalls that occur in the current service, but we don't often do this. Um, what if things go wrong mm. outside of the predictable path that we already yeah, imagined ourselves together with the team, together with even users, interviews. We don't really do a failure mode and effects analysis mm. kind of thing that you have in certain industries. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I always talk to organizations about doing uh, failure design and also consequence scanning. So thinking about these two things um, together. I mean, I tell companies to think about a lot of stuff. I mean, design is hard, right? You have to think about so many things. But um, designing for failure is like such a obvious thing you need to design for because if you help a user recover when something goes wrong their trust will build back up in you you know so if you kind of leave users and let them go and do their own thing I mean I'll tell you a very quick story right I once went to um New York and I was standing at the little carousel went to pick my bag up happy happy went to the hotel and I and this is a real story I'm not like over egging this I opened up my bag expecting my clothes, you know, my toiletries. And I opened up my bag and there was uh, an Irish rugby shirt, three pairs of socks and one tab of Viagra. I'm serious, <laughs> right? And I'm like, I don't think this is my suitcase. <laughs> so <laughs> what had happened? What? Which item gave it away? <laughs> <laughs> I think the rugby shirt. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I... Um, I tried everything. Like I called, it was British Airways. So I called British Airways. Um, I went on to like the website. I was basically caught in like really badly designed loops. And at one point they sent me to this, like what I call the DERF of the internet. And it was uh, World Tracer, which is the third party like bag, like tracer that mm -hmm. most airlines actually use. So they outsource their failure, which is actually really interesting as well. They haven't really designed the connection between the outsourcing of the, of that journey. And it looked like something from like, almost like HTML 1992 internet. And I'm like, is this for real? Like, is this a fake as well? So anyway, long story short, I end up going onto Twitter because that's where most users go when stuff goes wrong. And being like, I need my bag back. You need to like come and take this one and, and swap it with whoever it is. And they actually accused me under the US law in public of theft and that I could be arrested if I didn't return the bag. So this is all in all, I ended up getting my bag back by using Facebook and somebody finding me and getting my name from somebody who shouldn't have given it away. And it was a big story and we, we got it back, but they just did not design that journey at all. And it left me with like absolutely no trust in that organization to look after me when things fail. And I think those, when we don't design for failure, you carry that mistrust. It's almost, you know, if you think about trust as well, you can be, um, a bit beige in how you feel about an organization. Yeah, it's just like, it's just Netflix. Oh, they mess up all the time. But when it's quite serious stuff, like you're in another country, there's a little bit more jeopardy or you're trying to do like deal with your money at a bank, you tend to take trust in either, either more of a positively active way or, or a really uh, negative way as well. It's more extreme. Yeah. yeah. And so the more experiences you have with other services who don't design for failure, the more active you become in distrust for, for others. So it's failure design is so linked with the trust that we have towards mm -hmm. brands to look after us. If we don't design for those failure points, then, you know, you're kind of, you're doing a disservice to everybody else in the industry uh, or other industries. So yeah, I think it's really important um, to think about this stuff. Yeah. When I think about, uh, <clears throat> about your story and traveling as well, so I, I must admit that pinpointing like when you trust an organization or a service, it's quite hard. Even for me as a designer, I sometimes I just, my gut feeling tells me, okay, this is trustworthy. But uh, the example you gave, like this, a website looks too old. That's already another factor. Like, oh, maybe there's something to be checked or, or is it really trustworthy? Um, but I, I wanted to maybe zoom in and go back a little bit um, uh, to predictability uh, as well. Um, because I was also thinking about, um, yeah, the, 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 um, uh, the border between, let's say, predictability and famili familiarity and really designing something that people know and expect, but also like the, the nod towards innovation and new services and maybe new yeah, kinds of do ways of doing things. How do you see them 
relate to each other or how do you see them uh, as a designer uh, uh, yeah, work together to provide the, the best service possible at, uh, at a given moment? So you mean like when we sort of start to see new like user interaction patterns with new technology? Yeah, or, for example, yeah. or uh, for example, if you're designing a journey and, and we could have the tendency of, ah, because that is new or there's, a, for example, the QR code. So we talked about it earlier. That's like a nice design pattern. Uh, everybody is, uh, is doing it. Let's do it because maybe it's new or maybe we want to put it out there in the world that we're doing some, some more innovative things. Not mm. that QR codes are <laughs> innovative anymore, but um, uh, for example, a chatbot, but maybe people aren't really familiar with it at all. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Do you have some 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 ideas about that? Like how how do you relate the predictability as well with the innovation? Aspect? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think even going back a little step around thinking about something new being implemented is actually the design process of getting there. So it's so important that when we are designing stuff that we test it. I mean, that that to me actually is what design is about. There's a lot about uh, doing research, doing the journey mapping, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Design. Any type of design is about testing and learning, whether you work in architecture, interior design, user interaction design, textile design, testing how it goes in the washing machine, what happens, you know, we have to test stuff. So in terms of like getting, introducing something new uh, and, and, and ensuring there's a sense of familiarity is, is testing that that works for users and you get them to the outcome that you're seeking to get before you get there. And I think when I think about the stuff that we, expect in the world the way we walk around it you know if there's a handle on the door i know that if i pull the handle it's gonna open you know if there's a a button i mean most humans want to press buttons but i know that i have to press it so when we're designing we shouldn't really be introducing completely novel and new things we should be building on existing design patterns we know that will bring a certain behavior uh, uh, forward and move a user forward. So I think it's important that we don't always bring in completely new stuff. So, you know, when we think about the introduction of like voice assistants and that sort of technology, you know, back around, I can't even remember now when Siri came out for the first time and we introduced Alexas, but it doesn't mean that a government website changes and all you can do is like, you know, hey, Antwerp government, get me my passport system. You're not just leaving that one channel to do that. You're still providing other ways of doing something, but you're introducing an alternative that people might eventually adopt mm -hmm. um, in which to do that. So I think when we introduce completely new ways of interacting with stuff that we still have, I don't know if you want to call them older or more familiar channels and routes to do stuff. And I, I think this is really interesting actually with the uh, advent of the introduction of artificial intelligence mm -hmm. uh, technology. So uh, dare I mention ChatGPT, which everybody is obsessed with and really isn't actually the big thing that's about um, AI. I'm also obsessed and I, I really enjoy playing with it. But um, but ChatGPT and the other uh, LLMs, the large language models that are coming out in the code that goes with that, um, are really, I think, going to transform how we interact with services. But we can't just, again, close down all services mm -hmm. and just put a little box in and hope users will understand because it's only the people who are, uh, when we talk about, you know, technology adoption, technology adoption curve, mm -hmm. it's the, it's maybe you and I you who extreme are users extreme staff, users at the moment, yeah. but that will slowly become a more familiar pattern that users become familiar with. So yeah, mm -hmm. I think really my answer to that is, is you can't replace things with completely new stuff. I think mm -hmm. you should keep multiple options. And also maybe be aware of the of the underlying uh, expectations and the underlying more maybe slower moving um, yeah, needs and desires and patterns that they already know. Yeah, and not yeah. really focus on this new technology as oh, this is going to solve everything. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, really, really focus on the... Uh, the, the back story as well. Yeah, they used to use this term um, in, in government digital service, uh, used this term quite a lot. I'm not sure if it's actually still utilized, but called um, digital assistance. Mm -hmm. And it was a terminolo terminology given to thinking about ways to help people use the services, but they couldn't get online. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and we have like, a you know, at the time of digital assistance being a, a term we were using, a lot of people still couldn't get access to the internet for various reasons, whether they lived in poverty and can't afford it, um, whether they didn't have a good device to do that. In the UK at the time, there was about an estimated uh, 1 million people that didn't actually have a device that could access the internet. Um, or their skills weren't at a stage where they could kind of um, uh, get online. And 
So digital assistance really was this way of thinking about making sure that when the government is is really pushing to do online transactions, and the obvious reason is to reduce, you know, increase the efficiency of running public services and save money, um, that we still had a, a process for that. So you can see these things sort of starting to take place. And then, you know, people get used to, not, I'm being very sweeping statement here, but digital skills, according to Ofcom, have increased, particularly amongst elderly populations. Um, people have got more access to devices now, not everyone. I don't want to claim that it's completely changed, but our behavior and our ability to use new things will eventually follow that technology curve. So, um, yeah, I think just introduce things slowly that are new um, and hopefully you won't fail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, <clears throat> I think... You were also talking talking about the the consequence scanner. Um, I once read a, this article about Black Mirror brainstorms, as in uh, Black Mirror, the, the popular Netflix uh, show. I don't know if it's on Netflix actually. Yeah, uh, the show um, really um, holds this this kind of mirror what, to what could go wrong with technology. And um, I was wondering, like the conse consequence scanner, is this um, kind of the same philosophy, like thinking about what are all the consequences that could go wrong, or how how could uh, how does it work and, and how could people uh, people think about consequences uh, via such a scanner? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so con I mean, I think you're right. There are lots of different methods that people might have called consequence scanning. You know, they would have. Let me start that again. Sorry. <laughs> I think consequence scanning is a term that has lots of other terms as well that people have been using for quite a long time. My um, connection or understanding of it comes from. Uh, a think tank that was a, that was founded by Martha Lane Thought Fox uh, called Dot Everyone, who now sadly don't exist anymore, but they were really looking at the challenges of internet and technology and its impact in, in, on society and, and the planet. Uh, so they sadly closed down, but they still have their website out there. So they released a publication all about consequence scanning, and they said this is a way for organisations to consider the potential consequences of their product or service on people, communities and the planet. And they said there's kind of three core questions that you should ask. So one is, what are the intended and unintended consequences of this product or feature that you're building? Two, what are the positive consequences we want to focus on? So what are we really trying to do that is good? And that's all about responsible technology and that sort of stuff. And three, what are the consequences we want to mitigate? And they had a series of uh, kind of prompt cards to think this through you know, really thinking, bringing it back to the planet sometimes. Is there an unintended consequence on the planet? You know, if we look at, I don't know, the production of iPhones and we actually see where the mining's being done and the low wages and all that that comes with it, you know, that's a really bad thing somewhere else in the world that's it's not in America. Um, so if we want to make this phone, what is that going to mean somewhere else? It's the same for like using um, any form of technology that needs moderation, which is just about every social media platform and and service where people can interact online. Who's going to do that moderation? Well, most of that at the moment gets outsourced um, into places like China, uh, Asia, Africa. Uh, we even found out the other day that uh, ChatGPT, was it ChatGPT? I hope I get this right. Uh, had, had undertaken a, a contract with an organization in Africa paying like literally like minimum wage. And these poor human beings were having to look at and 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 review really things you don't even really want to imagine I don't really want to mention but you know where I'm going with that and these are unintended consequences of the stuff that we want to create and use in our lives and I think it's really important we think about that but you can't do that without having a diverse team because you need to have uh, lots of different viewpoints and people um, that can ask questions that you may have not thought about that you may not um, be considering so I think Really consequence scanning for me is about getting a diversity of people in a room together and asking the hard questions of, should we really be doing this if it's going to create this harm? And for me, if you, I mean, you can be a designer and help, you know, I don't know, a war criminal like make more guns. Sure, go and do that. But for me, design is really an, an ethical and a protest point of view in this world that you, and it's political, you should do good stuff with design. So I think consequence scanning is actually really kind of like, political question system or a kind of belief question uh, set that you should be asking to make sure that you're doing good in the world. And also getting comfortable with the questions you have to ask yourself that you're not used to answering, perhaps. I think uh, just having a diverse team will not be enough if you're not able to, to give a podium to asking these different viewpoints and mm. bringing them up, discussing them as well. 
Um, I'm not making this up myself. I've heard this from uh, a training we had actually last week about uh, inclusive communication. And one of the statements that struck me was that um, we have to get comfortable getting uncomfortable as well. And it was this openness. It was, I mean, it was a simple statement, but it was quite empowering actually to hear this, to be, um, yeah, to just be open to not getting it right the first time as well. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think there's lots of um, systemic points of, uh, sorry, ingrained like systems of things like racism, homophobia and stuff that you might not even be aware that you have inherited through your way of growing up in the world, the belief system that you have developed because of the experiences that you've had, the places you've been, the places you haven't been. And I try to be as self-aware as I, I can and I'm someone who's neurodiverse and is queer so I have my you know I have an understanding of the world it's often very we might say cis heteronormative like if I go to the doctor for example I'm consistently asked if I'm pregnant <laughs> not all the time I mean I don't always they're not always asking like you know but they're they, they will ask me and I'm like I've told you so many times that my partner is unable to get me pregnant, you know, like, and it's, and, and so you can't, if you want to design any service or product, you have to have a diverse team. If they had someone queer on that team, they might change the line of questioning of the doctor. It's the same for like, um, neurodiversity as well. You know, you might think, uh, uh as a, we call people who are maybe, uh, not thinking about things like autism and ADHD, like that you want to have a big open plan studio. Well, that's, that's awful for me because <laughs> I need somewhere. I, I really like being in an open plan space, but if you don't have a room for me to go, then it's really difficult for me. So if we don't have different viewpoints in the room and different experiences, then we're unable to ask the questions that we need to ask and the points of view that we need to bring up. So, and I'm not saying there's a really easy, it's e easy to do that. Um, but I think we have to strive to bring that diversity into the room, even if it's not on the team. So if you come back to the beginning of our conversation where you said designing for trust is encompassing quite a lot of topics and where just designing the service is not enough. Um, also the team, the organization that is implementing the service, designing or thinking of the service, we also have to, well, maybe not reinvent it, but at least consider it, how it's structured, how it's behaving. Um, so is there um, things that you've learned at Snook perhaps? Uh, how you how you made the organization aware of yeah behaving in a certain way to to enable this? Do you mean sorry to like enable asking these kinds of questions and yeah maybe to to add on that I'm also very interested in when do you do this in a project because I can sense with you uh, as well with with all the experience that you've had and maybe also the, the personal uh, investment that it's it's very clear you. I think for you, it's always there, the, the moral and maybe also the consequences. It, it's by default that you're uh, already very aware of the things that could go wrong or the things that you want to intend. Um, but that for me, for example, is something that I'm still learning to do. And I'm really curious as well um, from your experience in Snook, for example, is this something that you really plan workshops for or is this something that you do every week or at the start or at the end? How do you see this? practically uh, getting a foothold in, in, in a project? Yeah, I mean, this is a really tough question because there's, there's, there's no easy way to do this. I mean, it, just taking a step back, like I think what's really difficult for designers as a first point to make is that we are in service to the business model that's being created, right? And the outcomes set. So for example, if you're working for a big social media platform, but you're worried about users spending too much time online, you're, what you want to do for users is completely in contradiction to what that platform wants to do because they are, it's an attention economy, right? They want to make sure that you design more features that bring that person back to that platform. So I just start with that because it's just not easy. Um, so my first bit of advice to people, uh, any designer, snook or not, is if you cannot work in that environment and find ways to do good within that overarching business model, don't be there. So the first thing is to walk away. I know you can't walk away from a project when you're in consultancy because that would topple your business. But if you are working for an organization, don't go there if you, don't, if you can't hack that. Um, but that being said, I do think 
working for big commercial organizations, even organizations that might have policies that you disagree with, there's still good work that can be done there uh, to help kind of minimize harm to users and stuff. So that's sort of the first thing really uh, to, to take note of in that. I think the second thing moving on from that is that you can't topple the business model of an organization. So I remember, and hopefully if, if anyone from Snook who's worked with me listens to this, I think um, we, it's safe to say we were all quite sort of very strong in our moral viewpoint and ethics um, about stuff. And at some points in projects, we get really almost staff like upset with like, they're just doing bad things. They want change. Blah, blah, blah. And what I would say is that find anywhere you can make a change, even if it isn't in the user interface. So can you go and work with a policy team? and change what they're doing? Can you go work with finance and change what they're doing? Like, can you find, I call it full stack service design. Can you go to other parts of the organization and change what they're doing in a really positive way and just start with something really, really small to make that change? So again, coming back to sort of like internet and trust and safety, which is what we're talking about tonight. Like um, I just saw that uh, TikTok has, I don't know if it's coming now, it could be right now or the last couple of weeks, but for anyone under the age of 18, they are now uh, implementing a mandatory uh, one hour maximum on the platform, which is huge, right? Like it's really quite a big thing. And one hour each day. One hour each day. Yeah, okay. So after one hour you get cut off. Now don't get me wrong, I think young people will just get more accounts and more phones. I'm sure they'll try and figure out a way to do that. Um, but you know, if you wanted to make that happen, they said that they'd read um, research from this like kind of, uh, health institute looking at young people's like mental health you might have been the designer that slipped that in the right room to start a conversation or you might have looked at upcoming policy around keeping users safe and slipped that in a conversation so you can make as a designer little changes by being quite strategic in the way that you're performing or acting in an organization even if you're being frustrated with not being able to design for the right uh, outcome so my answer to your question my very long answer sorry is that there's no one moment in a project where you do this. I mean, you should definitely do consequence scanning, failure design, you know, once you've tested your kind of proposition and how something's gonna work, when you're moving into more like fidelity, like sort of really detailed fidelity of the, the service design and the product, you should be doing that stuff there for sure. But you can be acting in a good way at all times with different strategic moves inside the organization. I think, as designers that I've mentored or coached or trained, I think we've, I see that getting forgotten quite a lot. You have to be doing that. It's finding these openings and taking advantage of them when you see them or creating opportunity to introduce an idea. Yeah, yeah, totally. So we do um, training on like leading stakeholders and helping designers to really think about how they make change inside organizations. And I just come across like a lot of people who are not even thinking about that area of their work when they're designing. Uh, I've heard someone say like, stakeholders don't care anyway, so we should just get on with our work. That's like such the wrong sentiment to your work. Like you really need to think about how you get stuff over the line, how you make things happen. And we've always said that 90% uh, or 10% of service design is ideas. Exactly. 90% yeah. is... That's that's a quote, the quote uh, in yeah, yeah. services, right? Mm. Uh, I think uh, service design is 10% design and 90% convincing people that you're trying to do the right thing. That's the work. That's uh, the work. Uh, and you can't forget it. I mean, at the end of the day, organizations are just like hollow structures with a bunch of human beings inside them trying to make stuff happen and all performing because we have like metrics and measurements on our jobs, right? So we're all trying to do the thing that helps get the organizational outcomes, which often usurp user needs. And we're as designers trying to get user needs to be taken seriously. So we have to take seriously that 90% of work. And so we think about consequence scanning, failure design, all this stuff. That is your 90%, but it doesn't happen in one moment. It's not a workshop. It's all the time. And you need to be influencing and getting people to think about the stuff, starting campaigns to get organizations to care about it. And that is actually arguably more of the work of designers and service design these days than it is actually doing a journey map and thinking about designing for failure because if you design for failure it's going to cost you money and the organizations don't really want to spend more money so you are influencing people to care and i think that's a skill that or uh, uh activity that's often forgotten i think that's also the advantage then of having good um 
good teams as I mean as in a good um, constitution of team members with maybe some people who do not care about this stakeholder management aspect or this influencing just want to focus on the craft which is actually I find fair not everyone has to be uh, interested in managing all these expectations nudging people towards something but then staffing a good team who is like complementary is really important then yeah, a hundred percent. Like I think that I used to think about service designers as very different. It's again, it's such an ambiguous term. Like what is an actual service designer? Um, it comes with so many different skills. So I think there are, when I think about service design as a craft, it's people who are a bit like a mechanical engineer for a car. Like they can look at an organization, they have so much experience and they can be like, that policy is harming that user journey that way that we finance how we run the service is harming the experience. It's not getting the outcomes we need. So you have someone who is very deep craft-based, but they might not be great and no disrespect to anyone that I've met. Like they might just not be very good at bring, convening and bringing people together. And that is what you often do in medium to large organizations is kind of start campaigns, bring people together to believe in something. And so, yeah, you absolutely, you're totally right. You need uh, complementary skills and they might all be called service designers but it's deciding as a team who's going to do what work um, and and everyone yeah has a role to play in in convincing and influencing even down to the minutia of what do you put in a slide deck when you walk in a room and you pitch to your stakeholder you know that is that's part of it as well but I definitely agree with you you need you need those influencing people and whether we call them service designers or I don't know it could be anything the product owner business analysts you know manager director doesn't really matter but someone has to be really holding the team to account on doing that influencing work yeah but i also like the the uh the example you gave from from tiktok and implementing that could be also something very very concrete right because you also have this on uh, i think instagram as well that you could set up this timer and then you have spent 10 minutes or an hour or whatever you can also click it away uh but um uh, you see these platforms now it's social media but i think it's also with other services trying to come up with strategies or new features or new functionalities to um yeah uh, establish trusts in some sense or give some uh agency back to the the users as well uh there um and maybe on that note i was um interested as well in for example digital resilience and making it's also in the theme of of scamming and fraud and faults all these things that are coming uh, up in the news quite often more recently um, do you have some experience there to share about how to establish digital resilience or how to um yeah uh, protect maybe yourself as as a user because we're all users there but also as a designer when you're designing something yeah definitely well maybe just break down what we mean by digital resilience because i think it's quite a another ambiguous term in this space so um i came to digital resilience and the concept through working with parents own who are a fantastic charity who look at supporting parents and children particularly on the internet uh, in the uk um and they were part of a a working group in the UK called Digital Resilience Working Group, um, mm -hmm. part of the UK Council for Internet Safety. So they convened like a lot of different partners together. Um, and they talk about digital resilience as uh, learning by engaging online, uh, the potential challenges and experiencing them that might come with it rather than taking uh, avoidance or safety behaviors. So a lot of policy that has been uh, thrown around for a while in different countries has been quite reductionist. So it's like, we just, we can't let under 18s on the internet. Now, no one is doing that because that would probably throw quite a lot of human rights questions up in arms. But we also have uh, under United uh, Children's Rights Convention, a, a, a role to protect them um, as well. So there's this kind of concept around like, should we just like take them off it, not give them it? But it's been proven through studies that young people and children who actively engage online and meet these challenges, develop much more resilience to deal with them in the future, not just online, but actually in their everyday lives with, with negative things that might happen to them. So it's my belief and those of some of the organizations I've worked with that we should be really pushing people, not pushing, but get, letting them online. And so digital resilience, the framework is about four things. So it's about uh, helping a user understand when they might be um, at risk online. It's knowing what to do if something good does go wrong. It's then learning from your experience of being online and then being able to recover from any difficulties um, or uh, upsets. 
So, you know, there, there are lots of online harms, as, as the Ofcom report shows, the one around sort of internet use and behavior online. Uh, people's experience of online harms uh, in the UK anyway, and I would probably say it's the same everywhere else, is increasing, particularly from online fraud scams. So where we're doing things like romance scams, we catfish someone, we pretend to be someone, you send them money because you're getting married and they never show up or pretending that you have a pet to sell, like a poodle, and you don't show up. So these kind of scams um, are increasing. So platforms are now looking at how they build the digital resilience through education, you know. So a good example is, uh, I mean, Twitter, pre-Elon Musk, let's just put it that way. So back in the day before Elon Musk was in charge of Twitter, um, if you remember uh, during the COVID pandemic, the amount of I mean, I would say it was lies that Donald Trump was putting out there around vaccinations. You can say lies. Okay, yeah. good. No, I'm just checking we're in the right political arena here. Um, but he was, you know, he's getting people to drink bleach. And uh, there was this amazing bit of research done by Cornell University. Uh, they analyzed 38 million English language articles about the pandemic and found that President Trump was actually the largest driver of the infodemic, which was people kind of um, really not trusting science and, and believing uh, some of the stuff that he was um, spewing out. And what Twitter did, what I have in front of me on the screen, I know the listeners uh, uh, can't see, but was this uh, little green sign that came under, you know, Trump saying things, uh, reminding them that this might not be true. So there's a this tweet that says, um, Donald Trump says, a rigged election, because he thought the election was rigged in the United States. And there's just a little green thing below it that said, this claim about election fraud is disputed. Um, now, you probably wouldn't get that now, but at the time, the trust and safety team at Twitter were educating users because misinformation is an online harm and it's one that's increasing. So that's really what digital resilience is about. So I think we see ourselves doing the understanding and education um, part. Same as like if you go on Twitter and I don't know if they still do this again, pre-Elon Musk, but when you used to go to retweet uh, uh, an article, it would pop up and ask you, have you read this before you retweet it? And actually when they tried that out, so this little pop-up that would come up, uh, people... Uh, it increased the reading of the articles by 40% um, before they retweeted it. And some even cancelled the retweet um, uh, after it. I think that was 33% of people. So it, in terms of digital resilience and designing, I think we're doing a lot around these first two parts of digital resilience. Where we're doing less, I think, is learn and recover qualities. Um, you know, we really got down this idea of the design patterns around reporting, flagging content. I mean, it, pretty much on every platform now you can complain in, in an easy-ish way somehow. But how do we do the aftercare of digital resilience? So you make a report and it's like it goes into a black box and you're like, well, what might be the outcome? How long is it going to take? And what happens if someone's experienced trauma from something that they've seen or they've been attacked? How is that any different than that happening on a street in their home when someone is doing something bad to you? And we sort of seem to separate that. So for me, I don't have answers to exactly how you should do that, but the digital resilience library that I'm working on with ParentZone at the moment, we're developing a range of speculative and conceptual patterns that we're going to put out there uh, on the internet to say, this is what you should do when you implement a reporting intervention, a process. And so some of the patterns we've come up with is, is things like um, telling people how long it might take to just get a response. Uh, we've got stuff like, uh, we, we're calling the pattern, this is worded really badly, so we haven't finished this yet, but help a user to find and access further and further seek support. Probably a little wordy, but basically it's saying, we recognize that something has happened to you. Do you have somebody in your network that you can reach out to? It might be a teacher, a friend, you know, a member of your family, someone in your community. And here are some conversation starters for you to get that, to get that across. And that stuff doesn't exist right now. So we have to design for this you know, the, the sort of really learning from the experience and supporting people on the internet. We just, we just don't do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because in my opinion or in my experience, I think there's also a kind of stigma, right? If, if you have been scammed or frauded, it's still something that, that you don't really like to be, sh to share or to be talked about. But I was just thinking maybe it's a stupid example, but if you want to learn how to survive, let's say in the forest, you have to just know how the forest looked like and what kind of tools you can use and also what kind of patterns are there and you have to develop experience there as well right so i was also thinking about my childhood i'm a 90s kid so i grew up with the internet already but it was still like this 
very open space. Uh, there wasn't really like my first social media was MySpace, I think, when I was uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, let's see your account. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's probably still there. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's it's uh, it does give you some confidence that you have seen a lot of different platforms and a lot of different patterns and things and some more. I've never been scammed or anything, but uh, some more sketchy things help in defining what is really sketchy and what is not. Uh, but if you don't have that experience, you're you're a sitting duck, I think, for new innovative crime patterns. I mean, I, I well. think I think it's really interesting what you're saying. We sort of, if you grow up with a technology, you probably are able in some way, not all the time, because people are really clever at scamming people, uh, to recognize when there is something bad happening. But I think we're in the precipice. I don't mean to scare anybody, but I read this book by Mark Goodman. So I'm going to do my Mark Goodman note, which is his first page that says, I dare you to read on if you really, you know, this will change your life. And when you do read it, you're like, oh my God, everything is bad. Everyone is evil. Everyone will cause me harm. But I think we're on the precipice of a really uh, difficult new technology, which is AI, right? So I, th I think just going back one step, like human beings have always done bad stuff, right? Like always done bad stuff. Um, there was a, um, you know, like think about deep fakes. So we now have deep fakes. You might've seen the Trump pictures that were made um, where he's getting arrested and it's all very dramatic and he's being pulled through the streets of New York. Like that's a deep fake made by a piece of software called Midjourney, which is a, you know, makes images from from text prompts for anyone who, who doesn't know what that is. Um, but we've been do, doing deep fakes for years, right? So uh, I always think about the pictures of the Loch Ness Monster from Scotland, which was a monster seen, um, apparently seen um, in, in Loch Ness. And that was turned out 60 years later after the photo was, was released um, to be fake. So we are still doing bad things, but just with new forms of technology. The way they made that actually was by like sort of drawing it into the, the negatives um, and they even made footprints with uh, fake hippo foots, with, which were popular umbrella stands at the time. This is in like the 1930s. Like, so they were using any technology they could find to, to do that. The same is for like scams, for example, where people are impersonating or selling stuff that doesn't exist. Uh, there was a guy uh, who was called George C. Parker in the 1880s and 1890s. He actually sold the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, bridge uh, many times to different people for $50,000, which is an insane amount of money. Apparently he did this like over 10 times because he convinced people that he owned that bridge and that if they bought it off him, they could charge for people to walk between Brooklyn and New York. And it's it's nuts, right? And he, he was such a career criminal. He was like the con man, right? So he did other stuff like he would pose as prison wardens to get out of uh, jail. He had different pseudonyms like uh, James J. O'Brien, Warden Kennedy, and he did exactly what we know is impersonation, online fraud, uh, catfishing, all this sort of stuff that we know today. So human beings haven't changed. And I think what is scary now is that we're on the precipice of a new technology that we don't quite understand. And people who want to do bad things are going to start using that to do bad things to us. So the newest scam that I have seen that I think is actually quite scary is people using AI voice impersonators and they are calling family members so that that data is really easy to get. You can find just about anyone's phone number, especially with a, a PI, a private investigator. Most people you can just find it on Facebook and they're calling those family members using their voice and saying that something really bad has happened and they need money right away to be wired or they're pretending that they've kidnapped people. And so families are actually developing a safe word that they can use to know if something is, is true or not. But that's just new. I mean, I know that because I have an interest in this stuff. And I've been talking to my family about having some kind of silly safe word just in case. But I think that's what's scary now is that even if we think we know the technology, we haven't grown up with AI. So that mm -hmm. will be used to do a whole bunch of stuff, but it'll still do the same stuff. It'll still impersonate people. It will still sell stuff that doesn't exist. Uh, it will still take people's data, which we know now. So I'm what do we do now with that? I think we just need to really keep educating people and take it seriously. Do it in schools at a young age, media literacy, technological literacy, because if we can't understand how technology works now and it feels like a bit of a black box with algorithms and stuff like that, what the hell is going to happen when AI is being used to automate some of these? I mean, I think you'll get people like AI bots being humans impersonating people. I mean, it's kind of mind blowing. Mm. So we need that constant education as, as, 
as adults as well, I think, mm. to really combat this. And nicely, it also comes back from the, uh, this digital um, resilience and designing for trust, the framework you've mentioned for both, mm. one in the beginning, one now, just, just before. It's very similar. It's, and again, repeating the same structure in our methodology, in our mindset, in the way we do the work. Um, so I, I'm hopeful that we'll manage to... to um, Mitigate, you said, I think, mitigate yeah. the harm or the unintended consequences of this new technology as well by including that in our process, by including this in our methodology when we design, actually. Yeah, and I think it's really worth for anyone who wants to look it up. If you just Google, you know, UK government digital resilience, you'll find it. It's it's super simple framework. But I think what we're trying to do with the library, the digital resilience library that I'm building with Parents on um, and with the School of Good Services is to give designers and People, anyone who's making design decisions, actual examples of what this might look like as a series of patterns that you can implement because you get, you know, there's been a lot of really great effort in creating principles for digital resilience and safety by design, but, and they're really good directional principles, but they don't really get to the heart of actually, if I'm designing a, a user flow or user journey for reporting, how can I actually embed digital resilience in, uh, into it? So that's what I am really passionate about is sort of making things clear for designers about how to how to do it. And but also with, you know, with any library, it's the same for the mental health design pattern library I built. It's really about building a community of practice of people who can keep innovating that, keep changing it, because I don't believe for a second that the content that we put on there will still be relevant in six months, 12 months, 18 months time. So it's kind of refreshing it and making sure that we're looking at uh, uh, new stuff, you know, but I, I think you know, as, as designers and organizations, we have a responsibility to do this work, but now there is a legal mandate to do it as well in the, in the Europe, which we are, I'll mention again, sadly not part of anymore in the UK, um, thanks Brexit. Um, but you have the Digital Services Act coming in in 2024. So that is really pushing organizations and most organizations who perform transactions and peer-to-peer -peer interaction on the internet to look at how they mitigate the harm that will be encountered by users of all of all types, um, but also make sure that they've done these risk assessments to do it. And, you know, the UK is slowly getting through an online safety bill, which is of similar ilk, of course, not being in the EU, we need to have our own one. Um, sure, uh, but we, uh, we've, we've got to do this. So there's going to be a legal imperative now for us to actually do this this work. So for designers listening, like you should go and read, it's quite a long read, but you should go and look at what these bills are actually asking these platforms to do um, and, and what's going to happen as a result if we don't do it. We have these these guidelines or these these patterns and thought process, but what does it really mean? And sometimes you really learn more of um, uh, seeing a scam in action. There, there's this one TED talk of, about this guy who's replying to the emails of like this uh, scam artist. And I learned a lot about how they communicate just because it was so real and it was really an example instead of uh, just watch out for scam emails but yeah how do they look like uh what is being said how do you notice so i was really interested in the in the examples uh yeah. when when they when they will be live yeah yeah <laughs> of course. i mean i think that's an interesting like user need that i find when i was doing my research to build this thing that's not in the world yet but called the digital resilience uh, pattern library that we're prototyping right now is giving people examples mm -hmm. of online harms, but also the the journey that people go on as they spiral more mm -hmm. into that harm and where there are intervention points for digital resilience mm -hmm. uh, foundations like learn, educate, understand, recover. Um, because, you know, someone can be, an online scam can happen in a, in a second, mm -hmm. but quite a few of them happen over a long period yeah. of time. Yeah. Um, so how can you intervene so it's really important again like teams i talked about diversity of teams earlier that we have done the research and we understand what bad things people are doing i i think that's great research to do what what are the bad stuff people are doing I, I grew up reading that like how did murderers commit their crimes you know but we should be interested in that because we have to design against it you know and we, and we do and, and you know in technologists we use what we call um penetration testing which is testing uh, for cybersecurity. So, and we have, I have a friend who works for a company that literally does that. Like they have hackers working for them to test their systems and make sure that they are robust and no one can hack them. We should be doing the same for, you know, safety by design and, and mm -hmm. digital resilience. Yeah. 
I also like when I when I hear you talking about it. I also like the um, the perspective of uh, like good versus bad. It's kind of like a novel itself, right? Or a movie, or you really try to do good things. And uh, I, I like it. For me, it's also uh, resonating positivity and trying to not doing design because you have to, but really trying to come up and understanding why things go wrong as well. So. Is this uh, activism really nice. spirit of yeah, designers it's, 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 fighting the evil? We're the good guys, we're the goodies. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe I just like bad stuff and I'm really, actually, yeah. I don't care about the good stuff. I'm just interested now. We, we should exchange books though. I have some, I have some uh, reads for you. Well, well, this is real, right? When I was, uh, when I was like 15 years old, 14 years old, uh, in English class, we were asked to like give a talk. And I remember walking in and you had to bring like some prompts as well and do this five minute talk. And like all these kids like came in with posters of, I, I, I don't know if this will translate to all your listeners, but like Westlife, Boyzone, all these like boy bands and stuff. Like all the girls had this, the guys had like Arsenal, Manchester United, like Celtic, Rangers. And I came up and I put up um, a picture of uh, a serial killer called the Yorkshire Ripper and all his victims and talked through like every victim. And the teacher <laughs> took my mom aside <laughs> at parents evening and was like, we need to talk about Sarah. <laughs> Is everything all right? <laughs> Is she okay? Yeah, it's like a, what's the term? Morbid fascination. Um, yeah. I, I just think, uh, yeah, I, I have a morbid fascination for, for bad stuff. But uh, but knowing that it's bad, wanting to do good stuff about it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's a great way to end uh, this episode. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, maybe just uh, as a nicer closing word. <laughs> Um, I hear that there's a lot of good stuff coming up, actually. So um, maybe one of the, the first questions I have, the movie you're working on, when will it be out? Ah, that's the golden question. When will it be made first, I think? Um, I mean, films, I've realized, take a really long time to make. Um, next year would be great if we can get there. But making a film is like a design process. You need to prototype it, find more money, <laughs> convince somebody, as we said. So... Hopefully next year. Yeah, do look forward to that. Thank you. Right, I'm also looking forward to your talk uh, later this night on uh, Night Moose's Arena. Um, but maybe in the in the meantime, um, for the listeners who cannot join tonight or will um, yeah listen to this episode uh, a month or a year from now, where can they experience, see, read uh, your work? Um, what what do you want to tell them? Um, well, they can come to, you can come to School of Good Services. That's where I'm predominantly working now with Lou Down, who wrote Good Services. So we do training. So you can come in on a training course if you're interested uh, with us or just read what we're writing. Um, I write personally on sarah-drummond.com and you can read about full stack service design there. And if you're interested in the film, you can come to section28film.com. And I generally inhabit the internet as a, a moniker called Ruffle Muffin. So if you're on Twitter or other places, uh, you'll find me under that very uh, silly name or on LinkedIn. So I'm generally in and around the internet researching bad things, but doing good things. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for having us, uh, having you in our studio. Oh, you're today. welcome. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you here yeah. in my office. <laughs> Again. Uh, no, I love the conversation. It was, uh, it was really nice. Uh, much more to talk about. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we look forward to your talk tonight. And thank you. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. And for the closing of this episode, we also like to mention upcoming events from the Service Design Network because a lot is going on. Yeah, we want to promote the Service Design Global Conference in Berlin happening on October 5th and 6th this year, 2023. Um, there's also a pre-conference event with workshops and meetups and all kinds of cool things on the 4th of October already. Please go and buy your tickets. The team for this year is Catalyst for Change with topics as smart tech, for example, AI and chat GPT that you already uh, <laughs> heard um, uh, being discussed a lot this episode, but also digital transformation, employee experience, and uh, yeah, of course, sustainability and circular service design. Are you working on a project related to these topics? Don't hesitate to register as a speaker. There is a call for speakers for the conference officially open now, and you will find the link on our website or via our Instagram uh, in our bio. 
There's also the Service Design Awards that are still accepting entries um, for both professional and commercial projects as well as non-profit and student categories. The deadline for submissions is the June 30th and you can also find the link in our uh, bio and on our website so don't hesitate to either buy your ticket or register as a speaker or even as a yeah, service design possible award winning project and last but not least we also want to highlight the sdn academy where you can learn from various service design trainers all around the globe um, check the latest service design courses that match your service design level from beginners to experts and have uh, yeah there's a call a course for everything so enroll today to uh, up your skills and um, maybe you can even become a member of the sdn academy thank you so much for sarah drones being here and also for night moves and the service Design network for making our platform possible see you next time stay tuned for more